0: The Word of God from Second Samuel. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark of Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where where there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger. When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot you from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, "Your your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours Now one, and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers... The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Would you uh, please remain standing just a little bit longer, because uh, we need the Lord for this. Heavenly Father, um, we just recognize that these—the story is a true story. We believe that it is given for our good and yet it is awful and so lord i pray that you would teach and instruct and um, soften our hearts teach us to sit under your word we need you lord we need you bad be with us now by your spirit for we pray in jesus name amen you may be seated Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Ronnie. Uh, So we've been going through 2 Samuel. Today's actually going to be our final sermon, as this summer we're going to be spending time in the Psalms, and that's going to be really fruitful and sweet. Uh, The story we just heard is quite famous, but also quite painful. And we're going to talk about some heavy subjects because the passage does. And, um, and frankly, it raises issues that have touched every single one of our lives. And it will uh, be hard to hear and to talk about them, but we need to because the sins that are described in this story are so pervasive in our world. And it's really important that you know that God cares. That God has not been silent about these things. They're in his word. So I want to be gentle, um, but I want to be frank. Uh, Not because I want to open up old wounds, but because I really want to point you to God, and I want to point you to his grace. Uh, God has never been immune to the struggles that we face, and God has never turned a blind eye to the pain that we experience or the pain that we cause. You know, I saw this um, YouTube video of an Amazon delivery guy. He was dropping off a package on someone's front porch. And when he arrives, he notices that the, uh, the homeowners had left uh, a bunch of treats for delivery people. And the ring camera, you know what that is? Like the, the ring, right? So they're, they're capturing this whole thing. And this guy begins to look in the goodie basket and he's overwhelmed with delight. He, and you can hear it. He keeps repeating like, wow, oh, this is so nice. Oh, look at this. I love this. And he grabs a few things and he starts like, doing this like dance. And it's like all on camera. He's doing this celebration uh, dance. And the thing that sticks out to me was at the very end, he realizes that he'd been on camera the whole time. And he kind of gives this like, sheepish wave to the camera. And then he like, runs off. And uh, this mildly amusing video reminds me of the very final line of our passage. It's not so amusing, but it's hopeful. In verse 27, the very last verse, it says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. A more literal reading of the Hebrew says it like this The thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. David was on camera the whole time. God sees. And this is a sobering and important end to the story. You know, this story makes us wonder if this Bible is not the book that we think it is. You know, some of us think about the Bible as a book where we're supposed to get moral lessons to help us be acceptable to God so that maybe we get to go to heaven when we die or something like that. And yet, this story gives us David, right, who's supposed to be a hero, a warrior poet for the ages. He's a theologian. He's a spiritual giant. You know, the New Testament will quote him over and over again when they want to teach us about theological issues like justification, and yet to say that he catastrophically failed would be to understate what happened. You know, all the heroes in the Bible are losing types. This book is not what you think it is. It is a story of the world that we really live in the Bible is a story about how sin has ravished the world, how it has demolished the world that we live in, how it has invaded it with misery, and yet also how the grace of God in Jesus Christ superabounds and can make all things new. This story is not just bare history. It's not a story that one person told another a long time ago and then just got written down. No, this is a story that was very specifically given for our instruction. And it will instruct us by reflecting back onto us in really important ways. We're going to see how this story reflects back to us three ways for you note-takers. It's going to reflect back to us The danger of our success, it's going to reflect back to us our misuse of power, and then it will reflect back to us how our sin makes us numb. So let's look at how first, how our uh, success is dangerous. So the story begins, verse 1, with a bit of surprise. We're told that it's a spring afternoon, usually the time when kings go off to war. David, though, would remain back in Jerusalem. Uh, That alone is supposed to be quite unsettling because David is known as someone who acts. Like for decades now, he has a reputation of being the one who led Israel into important victories, never asking his men to do something that he himself is not willing to do. But something has changed in David. David was not off at war with his men. In fact, maybe uh, David had gotten to a place in his career where he had worked so hard. Maybe he trained up competent generals, delegated responsibilities. Maybe he thought that he had earned this leisure. He's at the apex of his power. He is the incumbent king, and so he thinks he is entitled to a break. He takes it so easy that, in fact, it was the afternoon, as it says in verse 2, when he finally got up. And I don't know if he's just taking a siesta or if he's just really late getting up from a long night. But clearly, David has taken it easy. So he grabs a drink, walks out onto the balcony roof of his palace, where he can oversee the whole town And from that vantage point, he can see a woman bathing. She's doing a religious thing, we're told. And we're also told that she was very beautiful. And we're not told her name just yet. And that's actually very important to the entire story. This precious woman, Bathsheba, becomes the passive object to a series of verbs. For which David is the subject. Verses three and four David sent, David inquired of her, David took her, and David lay with her. And the narrator portrays Bathsheba as largely passive and silent with very few words, and the weight of her silence falls very heavy. The weight of the story, the, the, the unchecked desire, The entitlement, all of this falls on David's shoulders. In very straightforward and simple language, verse 5, we're told that the woman conceived and she sent and told David three words that have rocked the world, the worlds of so many couples. It's changed the lives of so many. And sometimes these words produce overwhelming joy, but in other cases, like this one, deep deep sorrow, Bathsheba says, I am pregnant. And like, how did David get here? Like, in the New Testament, in the letter to Romans, to the Romans, the Apostle Paul, he says something really interesting when he's describing how sin operates, and it helps us understand what's going on here. In verse 8 of chapter 7, Paul says, he says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covenant, covetousness. In other words, Paul is saying sin seizes opportunity to produce in us something that is quite dark. And so here in our story, sin seized the opportunity of David's success. And I want to slow down here for just a second because this makes me really fearful for all of us in this room. Some of you are in a really prosperous moment in your life, right? You've worked so hard. You put in your time. You studied. You made wise and shrewd choices. And now maybe some of you have passive income. Or you have surprisingly large salaries and you have time to enjoy it. But look at me and listen to me carefully. Beware. Sin seizes an opportunity precisely in our success. David stopped waking up every morning and asking the titanic question— God, how are you leading me to live a life for you today? See, David doesn't ask that question. He lounges. He sends guys off to do his work. Now, I'm not saying that any of us are like sleeping in during work days, but we are spending this inordinate amount of time trying to figure out how to spend our money that we sense that we have surely earned and worked hard for. And we're doing that instead of asking the question, God, what is your call on my life for this day? See, our success puts us in this really precarious situation because we usually call it blessing instead of calling it scary. Now, there are others of you that don't have that success. You're like, I don't know what you're talking about, Ronnie, but you are begging God for it. You are grinding and grinding, and it feels like you're getting no breaks in this life, and you think, if I could just get one generous break in my life, it could take a turn for the better. And I would say to you also, beware. I want you to be open to the possibility that your struggle is actually evidence of God's mercy in your life. You know, the first church that I planted in Puerto Rico, it was, um, it was extremely economically, uh, socio-economically diverse. Uh, we had everything from, like, business owners to, like, day laborers who were just working, you know, hand-to-mouth. But then the second church I planted— It was extremely wealthy. Oil and gas guys from Texas, real estate moguls from California, uh, successful uh, Wall Street guys from New York, all of them came to Puerto Rico to benefit from certain tax shelters that our country offered. And usually, they got a 39% increase in wealth by simply electing to live on a golf cart community by the beach. And I am telling you, the material success that they pursued and achieved produced hardships in their life that they never anticipated. I can compare the two churches. I was both of their pastors. I mean, what was otherwise going great, soon their marriages began to fail. Their money estranged their children from the parents. Business partners, began their betrayal, and now they have lawsuits they had never even heard of in their life. And their once buoyant spiritual lives fell into decay and disarray because they would spend time thinking about how to spend their money and they missed more church than they ever missed in their life because now they've got time and money to do something. That spiritual buoyancy dropped. Why? Because sin seizes an opportunity, and there is a very real danger in our material success because it compromises our spiritual vibrancy and our dependency. And listen to me, like, I'm not just speaking to, like, new baby Christians. I'm speaking to people who have been walking with the Lord for a very long time. And I want you to know that none of us ever graduate from humble spiritual apprenticeship at the feet of Jesus. And we sit there day after day asking him, my Lord, like, what is your call on my life? This story, this awful story reflects back onto us the danger of success. It does more than that. The story also reflects back to us a misuse of power, our second point. So, back to our story David is frantic to try and to control the situation, he's frantic to work out so that he looks okay when this all ends. He constantly is shifting his approach. To certain situations that arise. And what exactly is his main approach? What is it? It's to use the main resource at his disposal. To use his power and authority. Now, you know, most of the time that I've ever heard this sermon preached, the focus has always been about sexual sin. And, and for sure that's present. But the more you study it, the more you realize... That is not at all the focus of this story. The focus is the misuse of power. And the storyteller unfolds the story so as to parallel this story to the very first story in the whole Bible of Adam and Eve in the garden. See, David looks and sees this beautiful woman just as our first mother, looked and saw fruit that was beautiful to the eye and good to eat. And that's not the problem. It's like everything that follows. You see, Adam and Eve, right? They're made royalty. They're vice regents, kings and queens to God. Because they were made in his image, they were bestowed so much power and authority. And the idea is, is that they're supposed to steward that power, their power and authority was supposed to be used to like cultivate and to draw out glory in the garden to draw out glory in one another so david the regent the powerful king he's supposed to steward that bo- that borrowed authority and to cultivate glory and like this is not an issue of ignorance for david he knows the moral vision of god's law He's the one, right, who writes in Psalm 19 that the law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. He's the one who says that the testimonies of Yahweh are sure, making the, the 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 wise as simple. Like David knows all of this. He knows that God has his good in mind when he gives the law. David knows that God has his flourishing in mind. He knows all of this because God has woven Goodness for our bodies and goodness for our relationships and goodness for how we treat each other into his law. And the good moral reality of God is built into the grain of this whole world by him. David knows this, but just like Adam and Eve, David begins to doubt God's goodness. This doubt leads him to to drink from a different source. And he becomes drunk on power. He has a choice to own his sin, to own his failure. But no, he doubles down. See, when the king sent for Bathsheba, though she was married, she had no choice. No one says no to the king. He gets what he wants. To say no is to cause shame and to receive the ire of the sovereign. And it worked. And because he was so successful, he would use the same tactic over and over in our passage. In verse 6, he makes a plan. He summons Uriah home from war. Ask him how it's going. Uriah tells him. He assumes that while Uriah's home, that he would connect, right, with his wife physically. And then David, of course, could cover his tracks. The plan didn't work. Instead of returning home, Uriah sleeps where the servants are, where David's servants are. And so David asks, verse 10, why didn't you go down to your house? And Uriah says in verse 11, 11, he says, my Lord, like if the Ark of the Covenant dwells in a tent, if the soldiers of the Lord of Israel Judah dwell in a tent, if my Lord, my general Joab dwells in a tent, who, who am I to rest in a house? Never. See, David assumed that Uriah was like him. Uriah. Uriah. Was not like him. And so David tries again, gets him inebriated, thinking surely he's going to connect with his wife now. Yet again, Uriah does not go into his wife, Bathsheba. As one commentary puts it, a drunk Uriah is more pious than a sober David. And again, David is faced with a choice, and there is this war raging inside of him. But again, he opts for power. He writes a letter to Joab, his general. He seals it, gives it to Uriah, sends it back with him into battle. He He seals it, and he gives it to Uriah. And contained in that letter are instructions for Joab to put Uriah in on the front lines and then to withdraw the troops and that would secure his death. I can, y'all can see the plan here, right? This virtuous man, is it about driving everyone crazy? Okay, I I think I'm, am I better now? Okay, I'm so sorry, everyone. Where was I? (laughs) He gives a letter back to Uriah. Uriah goes with the instructions, put him on the front lines, withdraw the troops, and um, you can see the pain here, can't you? this virtuous man, Uriah, goes back into battle carrying his own death warrant. (laughs) And why is David so sure that his plan will work? If Uriah opens the sealed letter, he gets killed. And if he doesn't, he gets killed. And Joab, his general, David even has a gun to his head Joab Joab can't defy the orders of his king. Everyone in David's life is now a commodity. Bathsheba is a body to be used. Uriah is a solution to David's problems. Joab is a tool to ensure that David gets his way and everyone is expendable. Power and authority are meant and given to draw out glory. But here it's turning image bearers, people who are made in God's image, into non-persons. And the narrator wants you to feel this intensely. You'll notice that in the entire passage outside of verse 3, We never hear the name Bathsheba again. She's just the woman. Her personhood is being erased by this wicked use of power. And I know, like, it can be tempting to kind of read the story, think to ourselves, like, David is such an idiot, right? Where is this guy who ministered justice and equity to all the people? I mean, where's that guy? Where's the guy who who shared the kindness of God to Mephibosheth? Well, David doubted God's goodness to him. He became entitled, and he thought, I I am a god. (laughs) I'm the king. Why shouldn't I be able to do whatever I want to the subjects in my kingdom? Church, the faith that you and I profess falls apart if you and I are not willing to be honest with all of it. Because this is the same David. The kind David and the one who misuses power. This is the war that's raging within him. And I know how this works from my own experience Of being a human, and I think you do too. I'm the CEO. Why shouldn't I be able to do whatever I want with the employees and resources in my company? I'm the teacher. Why shouldn't I be able to do whatever I want in my classroom? I'm the parent. Why shouldn't I get to do whatever I want that makes me happy in my family? I'm the pastor. Why shouldn't I get my way in the church? I am me. Why shouldn't I be able to do whatever I want with my own body? We forget that everything belongs to God and we are just stewards who have been given authority and power only in so far as we use it to draw out glory Because ultimately we are under the authority and power of God. The power of God is never misused. God's authority and power is always, it is always a goodness to us. Goodness for how we treat one another and goodness for how we treat our bodies. And when we see ourselves as ultimately in charge, we become entitled. And so we are inclined to use our power to get what we think we deserve. And this always invites chaos and sadness and loss. And part of growing in our faith is recognizing that although the particulars of our story may not be like David's, His story is still our story. Maturing in our faith is asking God to give us strength to believe Him and to sit under His authority and His power. And instead of doubting God's goodness, to actually see it in every word that He speaks to us. And to submit to the moral reality of all creation and to stay in the grain of loving him and loving our neighbors. Because if we don't submit to God's use of power, we will use and misuse our own. We will. All right. So far we looked at how this awful story reflects back to us the danger of our success and the misuse of our power. One last observation. This story reflects back to us how our sin makes us numb. We pick back up in the story. David has made his plan to have Uriah killed. And Uriah, you guys, is listed as David's 30 most valiant men. He's listed as one of David's mighty men. And he lives up to that title and proves worthy of it, Uriah's fidelity stands in sharp contrast to David's infidelity for the rest of his very short life. What David doesn't know, or what more likely he doesn't care about, is that for Joab, his general, to carry out his plan without arousing suspicion, he's going to have to put a whole lot more soldiers in peril than just Uriah. And that's what happens. It leads to the death and murder of Uriah and so many others. Soldiers who are fighting David's war. In order for Joab to execute David's orders, so many men would have to die. And Joab thinks he knows David, right? Like they've been together for a while. And David was always so zealous to protect his own men. Joab was sure that this news would be devastating to David. And so verse 22, we see that Joab sends a messenger to David to tell him all that happened and of the great cost. And like David's response is like wildly cynical. It's the most chilling words that have ever come out of that man's mouth. Verse 25, he says, do not let this matter trouble you. For the sword devours now one and now another. In other words, don't be bothered by this because I'm not. They're going to die anyway. And you can hear in that David's like sick relief. Look what sin has done to him. Like who is this guy? And after a period of mourning, he sends and takes Bathsheba. Second time as his wife, she has a son. And now we're back to where... We have started. David has done a lot. He has scrambled a lot. Looks like his plan has worked. And she has a son. God sees. God sees. It didn't work. David just doesn't know that. He cannot... Bend the moral reality that God has created into the grain of this good world. I don't care how many people he has fooled. And now, the best that David can do to survive this moral chaos is to justify everything and to turn his heart off and go numb. And that's exactly what he does. They're just going to die anyway. Y'all, David has changed. And sin has changed him. And it's important for like, you to hear this. And the reason why, this is, why sin is such a big deal and why it is so offensive to God, it's not because God is touchy. Look at me. It's not because God is touchy. It's because he loves us and he knows how it deforms us and it guts us out and it turns us into these moral zombies. It changes us. We're not who we were before. And it steals life from us. The only way to survive the moral reality of God that is ingrained in our very souls is to go numb and to turn off our hearts And church, you can see, right, how this is a far cry from the Savior's desire that we would have life and have it abundantly. Sin is not just a weird religious word. It is a destructive force in the universe. It's not cute. It's not relevant. It does not produce flourishing. And we invite it into our lives when we doubt God's goodness. When we live lives that go against the moral grain of the universe, in those moments our hearts go calloused and numb. And this awful story is scripture. And it's before us like a mirror so that we can see our own lives reflected in it. As Walter brighaman says, This story has cut very deep into the strange web of foolishness and fear and infidelity that composes the human map. But more than just a mirror that this story holds up to our souls, it's the story of a scheming and repugnant king. It is a story that makes us long for something better and truer. Doesn't it? Like, doesn't it? And by God's grace, you guys, we do have. We do have something more. You remember the final verse of the whole passage that tells us that the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. This injustice is seen and David will not get away with it, which means, and hear me, that your pain and your longing is seen by the eyes of God too. Now, I know this can scare us when we are seen in our darkest abuses of power and the numbness that we have when we're enjoying our success But this can also comfort us when we feel alone in our pain. Like God sees you. You feel alone, you're not. You are seen. And God is going to do something about it. And he's going to do something both about your guilt and your sadness. In the New Testament, in Colossians 1 Paul will say, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Denver Press, please listen to me. Jesus does not run away from people who doubt him, or run away from people who doubt the goodness of his word. Jesus does not move away from people who fall. And at great cost to himself, he moves towards us through his own death and resurrection and offers renewal to people like you and me. And he's not just reconciling us to God, but he's reconciling all things to God, even your deepest sadness by both the sins that have been committed against you and the sins that you've committed to others. He is ultimately doing something about this chaos and evil will not trump his purposes. And I know that it may take time to see how grace overcomes evil. But hear me on this. He will. He will overcome it. In this story, it would be centuries later. But when you open up the very first page of the New Testament, there's this genealogy of our Savior, of Jesus. And we learn, and it's prominently displayed, that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba is Solomon's mama. And she receives a place of honor in the eternal economy of God, bringing to the world its Savior. God was doing far more through grace than sin could ever do through a repugnant king. Amen. Amen. Treasure these words up in, their, in your heart, for they are true.